Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ron Swallow. I'm Ed Greer. And I'm producer Bill. And today we are going to ask a question that in this changing media landscape may not even have a good answer, but we'll be damned if that stops us. We are asking the question, what is the greatest box office draw? And that's a difficult question because as we've seen throughout 2022, the box office may not be a draw at all anymore. And I guess more pointedly, what makes people want to see a movie? And Ed, I know this comes from something that uh, you've been thinking about lately. Yeah, I uh, recently put up a thing on uh, on Twitter and on Instagram about, uh, you know, movie stars should die. It's over. That's over. These five or six people that casting directors just decided somewhere in 1975 were the people to watch. That sucks. It's mm. dumb. It's like it's it's movie stardom really is who got hot with certain high powered casting directors and actual directors at a certain time. That's what it that's what it seems like to me. And even in the present it seems like that. You know, people get hot for these reasons, they get a certain role, da 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 da. But as far as their actual acting ability, that being so much greater than all these uglies and character actors around and these people who somebody told were not stars, the difference in their skill level, a lot of times actors, so called movie stars, aren't even as good as these other actors. So, like, is that what we go to see movies for anymore anyway, given the advent of all of these new types of um, movies like comic book movies? And so it is also just a direct response to, like, Quentin Tarantino and people like that saying that, like, the movie star being dead has fucked movies. And and it's such a crime that sometimes people go to see movies because there's a fucking cocaine bear in them and not because <laughs> Brad Pitt's in it. By the way, cocaine bear, I'm already buying my ticket. That, mm -hmm. I think that movie looks awesome. I'm 100% in for Cocaine Bear. Let's do it. So this is a multifaceted conversation because, Ed, right away you're bringing up something that I, I think is going to be hard to ever get away from as long as you're making movies, which is the creative partnership between actors and directors. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because maybe we should set the context. That's not how the concept of the movie star started. The movie star really started as something that was connected to studios in the 30s and the 40s, where they consolidated distribution. So suddenly they're really controlling anything that happens with a film. And that goes on to include the stars of the movie. And so they create these really onerous contracts that really makes the actors beholden to the studios. They're almost like indentured servants, but they are getting paid money. Then you move into the 70s with auteur directors and suddenly it's about who's an actor that the director loves that's going to work in whatever they're trying mm. to do. So this is where Scorsese and De Niro starts, Francis Ford Coppola with both Pacino and De Niro. You know, you're, you're seeing Clint Eastwood uh, really coming into his own with the Spaghetti Westerns. Then you move into an era where it's all about the opening weekend. Jaws and then Star Wars creates the era of the blockbuster. And now it's like, we want to drive people to theaters on the opening weekend and can collect tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars right out the gate. And that's now how our financials are working. So then it becomes a question of who can open a movie, who makes a movie must see. I'm not going to do anything this weekend other than go see this movie. And that's really where the movie star, as we're talking about it today, is born with people like Tom Cruise, Denzel Washington, Tom Hanks, people that everybody in America loves. 
And now, over the past 20 years or so, we've transitioned into the era, into the era of IP, where it's not about who's the name on the marquee that's getting the movie made. It's about what's the franchise that's getting the movie made. Hmm. And so now it becomes a question of how do we find the right actor that can carry this franchise? So rather than leading with the actor and saying, hey, what do we got that this guy can star in that's going to bring in a big director? Now we assemble all behind the scenes pieces and go, okay, who's going to be the face of this thing? Now we're at another inflection point where it's like, what is the box office even going to be in five years? Because mm. 2022 has sort of taught us movie going is kind of going out the door and all the studios are trying to figure out how they're going to make their money back for making these movies. And so are we going to go back to, you know, big draw name actors? Are we going to continue to double down on franchises? Is everything going to become low budget? And if so, what does that mean for the movie star? I don't, there's a lot of questions, but that's sort of your 30,000 foot view. I guess, Ron, I want to ask you, you're somebody who's really responded to movie stars in past discussions, whether it's Bruce Lee, Jean-Claude Van Damme, what have you. Do you find yourself, as you look for movies to either go see in theaters or stream, does it matter to you anymore? Who is that top name on the marquee? I'll watch everything Melissa McCarthy makes. I just mm. will. She makes me laugh every single time I watch her stuff, even when it's like, kind of bad i still have like a great time watching her so i don't know if she counts as a star per se but i will watch her stuff i think it comes down to people i really like like i'll probably give anything keanu reeves is in a chance at mm -hmm. least uh we know tom cruise i'll give tom cruise a chance uh, a, a lot of times um martial artist stuff like you know i'll watch anything donnie yen's in till the end of time just because i love mm. watching his his action and he probably has a stunt guy that does most of his stuff at this point <laughs> but i but i still love it i still love it so you know uh so there's guys like that 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 i'll definitely watch um i think the way uh, the genre works into this conversation is interesting too because you mentioned mm -hmm. melissa mccarthy and i've definitely been finding myself lately like just because i think she's hilarious and i think she chooses good material like, I'll watch anything Aubrey Plaza is in. Oh, I yeah. She's fantastic. And, like, this is one of the great things about the movie star, whether you like it or not. When movies get made on the backs of the famous person in them, it's almost like you're trusting the taste of that actor when you're going mm -hmm. to see the movie. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely a shorthand and, like, even as somebody who really appreciates directing and writing and cinematography and all that, I just said, like, when it, even, especially when it comes to like weird, quirky indie stuff, if Aubrey Plaza's in it, I'm in. So, fair. Well, well I mean, I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, what, I, you go ahead. All right. I'll, I'll go ahead and then you can go ahead. Um, that, it's interesting that, that point about taste because I feel that in my bones, even for something like, even for someone like Tom Cruise. I trust Tom Cruise now. Like there was a time when I was just like, you're likely to get a cocktail as anything. But I think now that he has his production shingle and everything he does is a hundred percent him. Even those Jack Reacher movies that weren't really that great. They were not bad. And he picked great filmmakers to work with or rather Christopher McQuarrie, great filmmaker to work on him with them and made a great relationship with them that led to, you know, the mission Impossible movies taking a step up. Uh, so I just think when, I think Tom Cruise's taste 
is what I respect almost as much as any of the dopeness of him. And CR Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise, the greatest episode for more waxing on Tom Cruise. <laughs> but I think even a, even a superstar like Tom Cruise, part of why I fucks with him is I trust his taste. And last things last, I don't know that I saw Maverick just because of Tom Cruise. It was a franchise I like. If they're going to make Top Gun into a franchise, I would like to go see that. You know what I mean? So it was this weird ball of, I love Tom Cruise. I like the jets in the air fighting uh, uh, faceless enemies, you know, franchise they're trying to do. So I would love to see or catch up with a, a sequel of that character. You know what I mean? So it was a mix. It wasn't just a Tom Cruise movie to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's interesting because uh, I, I looked up the top grossing and um, actors, basically, uh, in the last, I guess, as of July 2022. Uh, we got Samuel L. Jackson at $5.7 billion that he has been a part of. Obviously, a lot of that is Avengers. But I also think about uh, Snakes on a Plane, which I did go see. Now, part of it <laughs> was because it was funny. This the, the whole concept was just so dumb, kind of like Cocaine Bear is going to be ridiculous. But also part of it was I did want to go see Samuel L. Jackson be Samuel L. Jackson in a movie. So I, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, you know, and obviously I don't think Snakes on a Plane made a, a, a billion dollars, but but it probably made more money than it should have made because of Samuel I, L. Jackson. I being think it in got movie. made. It got made because Samuel L. Jackson said he was exactly. Doing it. And that movie was fun because of him. Think about his career, which, by the way, like started in his 40s, you know, mm -hmm. with respect to bit roles early in his career. But since he really became a name, he has kind of adapted to every different definition of a movie star mm -hmm. because he'll do weird movies that he gets made by virtue of the power of his name. He mm -hmm. will take part in multiple big ass franchises, whether it's Avengers, you know, he made more than one Shaft movie, you know, he does voice work in a lot of things. And he's also a director's favorite actor. So he does all these movies with Quentin Tarantino, who's kind of a box office draw in and of himself. He has kind of fit any different angle on the movie star that you can think of. And I think the, the one problem with this argument uh, this conversation that we're having is we're all somewhat close of age enough that we've kind of been embroiled. So for, for in the, in the big actors draw you type of thing, I give Brad Pitt a chance in most of his movies, for instance, for sure. But I, I wouldn't discount that for the younger generation. I think it's just different actors than maybe yeah. we would immediately go to. Cause you look at something that literally just happened over Thanksgiving the series Wednesday, the Adams Family CW riff that Netflix just put together, became their number one most streamed series of all time, at least wow. in regards to its first week. People younger than us flocked to that show in droves, not because they're huge Adams Family stands, and mm -hmm. probably not even because they're huge Tim Burton fans but because they're Jenna Ortega stands. Yep. And frankly, I had never heard of Jenna Ortega before mm -hmm. Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and let's talk about Zendaya. Well, sure. I mean, that whole Disney Channel factory oh, is boy. a thing that like we were old. We were too old to really be a part of. But I think if you talk to anybody under the age of 25, like their touchstone for celebrities that they will go see in anything that those celebrities make 
are all those kids that started on the live action Disney sitcoms. You know, it's like that that pipeline gave us Jenna Ortega, Zendaya, Ariana Grande, um, Selena Gomez, um, you know, a, a number of different stars, many of whom I don't even know their names. But it's like these people who show up playing like the tortured college kid or whatever on like the new HBO series or it's like they all start in these Disney Channel, Nickelodeon live action sitcoms. I think there's still a huge argument to be made that like the star is very relevant to the, to the upcoming generation. Yeah. yeah I, I think that's true. But also I think when we're going back to Brad Pitt real quick, that's an interesting one of these guys. He's one of the last movie stars. One of the last ones of the, like you go to see him. Mm-hmm. I think I put him below people like Tom Cruise because I can't quite trust Brad Pitt. Like mm-hmm. Brad Pitt, if Brad Pitt's in the Quentin Tarantino movie, he's going to be the shit. Brad Pitt with some other motherfucker. I don't know. Yep. I don't know what's going to happen because even if he produces it, he has his own production shingle and like he helped get 12 years of slave made. He appeared in 12 years of slave to give them a little boost so that the people go see the movie and see how powerful it was and blah, blah, blah. And he, and you know, he helped them get it produced and shit like that. So like, I'm not dissing him as far as his ability to be a producer and a, and a draw, but like at the taste angle you hit on bill, I keep going back to that. You're so fucking right. There are certain people, their taste is just so immaculate, but even then it's like people like Meryl slip, Meryl Streep, mm. Meryl Streep, has some definite like what the fuck did you do that for movies but for her demographic and what she's trying to do i think she has pretty great taste especially when she was hot you know what i mean yeah. uh no i'm not talking about physically uh when, when she was like just the hottest actress in the world i think she did a bunch of bangers in a row you know what i mean i think there's an issue that once you do become somebody who audiences rely on for your taste which is another way of just saying like somebody who's been in a bunch of hits in a row, essentially, you have a number of things you could do with that. You could stay very choosy and rely on your own taste and become an actor's actor, which is like the Daniel day Lewis method. Right. Mm -hmm. But then you're really leaving a lot of money on the table for lack of a better way to put it. (laughs) And like, so then you could become a Bruce Willis or a Nick cage who obviously have a lot of their own issues, but I think even Robert De Niro fits into that category where it's like, look, if all these scripts are going to start landing on my desk, I'm going to fucking do them because why not? Or you're somebody who sets up your own production company and then it becomes antithetical to your business model to be that choosy, right? Like if you can put an investment into something, get it made and know you're going to get a return on it, then that becomes a good project. It's not just about like, this has to be the greatest thing I've read in five years, you know, which is the Daniel Day-Lewis model. So that that interplay of art and commerce is always a tough obstacle to navigate. And well, and check this out. Uh, Mark Ruffalo is on this list. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he made $3.5 billion playing the Hulk. So so you think you think about like, I don't go see a movie for Mark Ruffalo. I like him. Don't get me wrong. But I don't go see a movie for Mark Ruffalo. But that guy has made has helped. He's been part of three point five billion dollars of grossing movies. So I don't. I don't. I don't even know if it matters at that point when you're part of Marvel. See, that's interesting too, though, because as an actor, I would put Mark Ruffalo on a list of like working actors. Like Absolutely. He, he himself, before he signed up with Marvel, was never a star. Like you never were going to sell a movie on the name Mark Ruffalo. But he worked a shit ton. 
I mean, yeah. that guy is in multiple movies a year and has been for like the past 20 years. And is a good actor, period. Great actor. Yeah. Great actor. But again, to, back to Ed's point, it's not like you're trusting Mark Ruffalo for taste because yeah. as much as, you know, Mark Ruffalo could be in an Oscar nominated film, he'll also show up in like The Odd Life of Timothy Green, which was just a horrible book adaptation that they made. Like he just takes jobs. That's the kind <laughs> of actor he is. So here's another interesting couple of people uh, that I think are will add to the discussion, and that's uh, Will Smith, uh, mm. Vin Diesel, and then The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. I mean, Vin Diesel is like, like Vin Diesel's on there because he's been in two huge franchises: the Pitch yeah. Black series and the Fast and the Furious series. Well, you know what though? Honestly, would you bro, go see a Vin it, Diesel movie? Did you go see Blood Bloodsport or Bloodspot or whatever? <laughs> It's bloodshot, yeah, and blood yes, shot. it sucked ass. Yeah. But you can, but but honestly, bros, it's it's what's wild about that is yes, they kept making pitch blacks, but they didn't make money like that, dude. It's that Fast and the Furious shit. It's eight, yep. nine, ten, goddamn Fast and the Furious movies that's got him on this list, that's, which is incredible. He's yeah. he's he's in like one and one fourth franchises, and is destroying this on this list like this. Yeah. Which which leads to my point that I was saying earlier, this whole concept of like people people of a certain age and I got to say it, a certain demographic persuasion, if you know what I mean, uh, seem to think that movie stars are the best actors that they could get, period, bar none. And that is why they are so big. And you must trust them when they show up in something. It's like, no, no, I'm sh- quite sure there were like a lot. You know what I mean? I, I just feel mm-hmm. like. There, there's, there's more to the movie star than um, even their physical appeal or their charisma and shit like that. There's, there's a lot of shit at play that makes certain people get offered a lot of shit, even though they don't progress as actors over and over. Whereas, uh, I think we're moving into a space where somebody like Mark Ruffalo could get on this list because he was the best person for a part. That's all I've ever been arguing for is stop having, uh, I think at the end of my tweet or whatever, I said, uh, I'd rather have the best person for the part than, uh, than Tom Hanks playing a ninja or something. Mm-hmm. And, it's, uh, and it's like, that's what I'm saying. Like We, we come from an era where, yeah, they, would let Tom, they let Tom Cruise play a fucking samurai because it was almost historically accurate. You know what I mean? And they, they, and they would let it go. And even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't, even if it was a new John Wayne playing Genghis Khan, we were doing that shit until about 2007, 2008. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So I just think there's the movie star as it was being shoehorned into things that going away is good. And the Ruffalo's and the Samuel Jackson's Samuel Jackson is an old bug eyed crackhead looking fucker. And he's the, one of the biggest movie stars on the planet. That wouldn't have happened 50 years earlier. No. And I think, you know why? So it's like Jesus Christ. Why, why are we? Why? Why would we stick to that old model where there's like six white motherfuckers and five white chicks that they cycle out every two years because they'll fuck around and get over twenty eight and become useless? You know what I'm saying? Well, fuck that system into this new system where we can have all these different types of people being famous and fucking Viola Davis and goddamn, yep. uh, you know, uh, uh, fucking the the dude who's playing um, N- Namor, uh, Tanakh Huerta. Yeah, dude. That guy was not going to be in a major ass movie like that to the point where they they said they introduced him in Black Panther, introduced him to Nortuenta. He's been famous in Mexico for probably years, yeah. but he's introduced to our star system. That's how fucking segregated it is. I'm not trying to be a dickhead, but I'm just like, no. 
Fuck that. So so actually I want to talk I want to talk about Viola Davis for a second because oh, yeah. Vi- Viola Davis is really interesting to me. I was just on a, a kick of watching old older sci-fi movies right around Thanksgiving and I watched um the remake of Solaris that uh, Steven Soderbergh made. Mm-hmm. And I did a double cuz and so that's a great example of that movie does not fucking get made unless George Clooney signs up for it because it's like, <laughs> here's this contemplative, sad, like mystical science fiction movie that's a remake of a Russian drama from the based on a based on a Russian novel from the fifties. Like, yeah. Anyway, though, I'm watching that movie and like right at the beginning of the second act, they're introducing the other astronauts stranded on this space station, and I do a double take. I'm like, holy shit, is that Viola Davis? And it's a movie from like 2002, I want to say. Yeah. And you know how I know it's in 2002? Yeah. I did extra work in it. Did you really? Yeah. Some of the worst extra work I've ever done because I had to wear a plastic rubber suit for hours out in LA downtown. (laughs) Holy shit, dude. It was a fucking nightmare. But yes. (laughs) Was that from some of the on earth scenes where he's like walking around? Okay. Yeah. And everybody that's wears those weird ass clothing and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, for the environmental was... protection shit. Yeah, that's yep. fucking great. But anyway, so I'm but Viola Davis is already like a woman of age in that movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I I can say that confidently because I then went to her Wikipedia page to be like, Jesus, like how long has this woman been working before she actually became a thing in Hollywood? And like she didn't get like you're excited to see her on the on the marquee famous until she was like 50 something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now also by the way kudos to her for being in the best shape of her life and headlining an action movie with the woman king at like 60 that's fucking amazing mm-hmm. yeah um but also it's it's an interesting thing that like she was a working actor and probably in a, at a lot of points a struggling working actor for 30 years And then she became a movie star. And I think one of the, I don't know if it's a counter argument, but one of an interesting discussion point when we're talking about the movie stars is then, is it possible to sustain a career as an actor in, and look, being a movie star was always, is always the 1% of the 1% pipe dream, but it's still enough that like, the promise of that is what drives people. And in a world where we just get rid of that completely, where we no longer like a script and then put the names of all the actors that could star in it up on a board to decide if we're going to finance it, right? Can you even sustain life as an actor without mm. that being the thing you're going after? That's a great question. If you take away the the, the lottery ticket... Do you mm-hmm. get people less driven who right, go into even, something else, be a rock even, star or whatever? <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's also like so much of the business is dependent on the fact that like we match up a script with a face or we match up a script, a director and a face. Right. Yeah. And if in a world where every script is a from scratch casting search, right? Like, we just really love this script or this director that we love really loves this script. And now we're going to do a nationwide from scratch casting search for every part in this script, right? Can anybody be a working actor even? 
Hmm. Well, I think I think there's already more than enough checks and balances that keep the whole acting game alive. You know what I mean? Like, I think I don't think the world's going to turn into a cattle call if we don't stop sucking the next Brad Pitt's dick or whatever. You know what I mean? I, I don't I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I do think I think what we might do is adapt what we think of as the, the face on the side. You know what I mean? When, when we're deciding to um, package stuff we can consider more people for the packages as yeah, what I think we, is going to, as is what it's what's happening and what's going to continue to happen in the future. Yeah. And we may get our pipe dream guys. You may get the actual thing that we love to believe is the truth. And that's quality mm-hmm. is a determining factor in what people go see. So if someone's just so good and every single thing they do that you want to go see them after that, that's how we get the new stars but otherwise, if you're not that great, but you only fit that one role or whatever, like there's plenty of people we've seen who like nailed something and then you've seen them in other things and you're like, oh, you're not, you can't do anything else but that one thing. Hey, so, you stop talking about Jason Momoa. Okay. <laughs> but you know, I mean, look, it's <laughs> sad that he's uncle man because he needs to play Lobo. I just want to point know. out. I oh, know yeah. it's a fucking crime. He's not it Lobo. Is. It it's is. a crime. But here's the thing, though. I mean, plug in any name you want. I was just about to say, don't Vin Diesel and The Rock both fit that description? Didn't Arnold Schwarzenegger fit that description of like, we found the one thing you could do? And I mean, Arnold, to be fair, Arnold was a little bit more versatile. But and here's here's the thing that you can't really police. Technically, Keanu does. Sorry. Well, I was going to say the minute Arnold hits the scene and he blows up with the Terminator as essentially more object than person, right? But you then your brain as any type of creative starts going, what can I do with this guy? And so, yeah, I mean, we went through 20 years in Hollywood before he became the governor where producers, directors, and writers were all just like, how can I make something for Arnold Schwarzenegger? Mm-hmm. Which to me is the other side of the movie star coin, right? It's like yeah. when you get enough clout that people go, can I just make something for you? Which to me, like that is Dwayne Johnson's career at this point. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I don't so, necessarily that, like that. <laughs> and that's interesting because like uh, Robert Downey Jr. has done a bazillion different roles. I think he's a great actor. But if you look at like a lot of the uh, the stuff that he does well in, the stuff that he really kills seems to be a uh, arrogant guy. <laughs> sure. And so now could you write something for Robert Downey Jr.? Would you even try to do that? Can you undo him being Iron Man? Can you, you know what I mean? Can you undo him being Sherlock Holmes? I guess the, the two well, okay. things. But that, that, that is, but that's what actors used to fear most. Back at, that's the thing. Oh, here we go. Okay. Cause like right now, what you just said, you can get a bit part and Guardians of the Galaxy and the Guardians of the Galaxy show up in Avengers in game. And next thing you know, you're one of the gro- highest grossing actors ever. Because I think that's another thing that put Vindy's on the list is him being in the Guardians of the Galaxy shits. Yeah. Uh, so, but actors used to fear so much. They didn't want to do television. What would television do? Make yeah. somebody watch you as one character for years and years. And yeah. so-called typecast you. Yeah. Now the movies, given all this event shit even and even if we take out car- cartoon marvel all that bullshit chris pratt in the olden days he could be fucking um typecast as put your hand out and stop the dinosaurs guy 
Uh, do you want to get t- dinosaur guy in this movie? That could have happened back in the days. They could have typecast him as an explorer rugged type. Maybe he wants to play a sensitive guy in a rom-com. They won't give him the role because he's tough dinosaur guy. You know what I mean? They used to think about typecasting in that way. Nowadays, it's like, boy, you better get typecast. You want to get some money in this business. You well, better I mean, get typecast. I mean, God, there's so many weird angles to this because Chris Pratt is an interesting question where like, Yes. As as you know, wisecracking dinosaur guy or wisecracking space guy, very watchable, but they do keep trying to give him other roles and they all keep sucking. (laughs) (laughs) Also has been they've tried to make him the lead in like romantic dramas and they've tried to make him the lead in other shit. And it's like nobody wants to go see that shit. (laughs) Well, and remember where he started too. It wasn't Guardians of the Galaxy, it was was a TV show. Absolutely. And he was just a schlubby loser. But he was I mean, lovable look, and adorable. Yes. But see, yeah. and there's there's so much even wrapped up in that. Because I do think, like, there's never, you're never going to be able to get audiences away from responding to the guy who's lovable and adorable. Or the girl, whoever. The person who's lovable and adorable. And that's where I think that, like, just some natural charisma is always going to get over on an audience. And then from the point of view of the people making the movies, all you want to do is ride those coattails. And maybe that's really what we are talking about, what we should be talking about here is like, look, the phenomena of who breaks and who doesn't, like who does an audience respond to and who does not, is reliant on a hundred different factors. But the real question is, does it ever make sense to then jump on board and go, let me try to get me some of that. And I would argue that maybe we're in an era where people are starting to reconsider that, especially like when you look at somebody like Vin Diesel, who can make a billion dollars in a Fast and Furious movie or saying one line in a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but you try to put him in anything else. And yes, the the Pitch Black series flamed out. They tried to restart the Triple X series twice, didn't go anywhere, you know, He's been, they tried to start a bloodshot franchise that didn't do anything. So it's like, does it make sense to see Vin Diesel be the charismatic meathead in Fast and Furious and try to jump on board and go, let me see what I could do with this charismatic meathead? Like, is that the right angle? Well, you're talking about meat meatheads and you're talking about how male the list was earlier. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I just looked up a list on Wikipedia and Scarlett Johansson Scarlett yep. Johansson is like the biggest. And then it goes Scarlett Johansson, Rob Downey Jr., Samuel L. Jackson, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Pratt. And then six is Tom Cruise. Mm. That's how big Avengers Endgame and all that shit was, like with all the billions and billions. It's just launch people, like Brown was saying earlier, up this giant list. And then after that, after Tom Cruise is Chris Evans, then fucking Zoe Zaldana is the only other fucking woman on this whole list. Mm-hmm. And you know why, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Tom Hanks and then Vin Diesel. And you know why with, with both of those guys. So it's just it's just really interesting how like how big these franchises can be as far as your saleability. But at the same time, no one respects that you did that. Right? Nobody went to go see Avengers Endgame for Scarlett Johansson. I'm sorry. Literally nobody. She, yeah. It was great that she was in it. They would miss her if she wasn't. And they're going to miss her if they keep her dead. I, yeah. I assure you. Because yeah. she is, I, I got to say it. Scarlett Johansson is the girl Keanu Reeves. She is. She's the closest thing that we have. And yeah. that's fucking important. Co-sign that. Yep. Yep. She's great. Black Widow's awesome. And uh, I don't know if I would 
how I'd feel about somebody else playing Black Widow. Emily uh, Blunt would have killed Black Widow, but like I think to Ed's point, Scarlett Johansson is that innately charismatic, like never gives you huge ups and downs, isn't maybe the greatest actor, but is just like likable and believable in any number of different situations. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I think that's the Keanu Reeves uh, comparison. Dude, yeah. when, when she gets her own John Wick later down the road, which I'm going to speak into existence, I'm going to write the shit for her. Mm. Fucking her own John Wick, like she's a 45, 48-year-old lady, and her daughter's missing, and she's got to tear through a bunch of guys. Get the fuck out of here, bro. She's going to rip that. that, and she's going to look so goddamn hot. She's mm. going to be like Rene Russo back when she was fucking with Pierce Brosnan in those kind of movies. Ooh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That kind of Rene Russo era of like Elite Weapon 3, the fucking- uh, Thomas Crown with, Affair. Thomas Crown right. Affair, that Rene Russo, hubba fucking hubba. She's going to be like that times two and kicking people's ass and breaking their arms with new arm with new uh, funky fresh stunt technology. Sign me up for that shit, dude. Uh, Scarlett Johansson with a couple crow's feet. Boy, anyway. So mm. I really think that looking, and I want that for women. Honestly, yep. I want more women. Uh, fucking uh, Liam Neeson's. That's what I thought of earlier when you were saying that, Bill. When you were saying Viola Davis in her in her fifties, going into sixties, being yeah. an action hero. Yeah, Liam Neeson with uh, as as uh, uh, Jim Norton called his soy sauce colored hair, do, <laughs> doing all these action movies after sixty. It's preposterous on on its face, but so I wish women could do it too. I wish more women could do it too. Yeah, that's also interesting though because like that's almost an argument in favor of the movie star because it's like, Mm -hmm. well, shit, Liam Neeson has proven himself time and time again, going all the way back to Rob Roy. Mm -hmm. Now he's getting older, but like, we can't just stop putting Liam Neeson in movies. What can we do with Liam Neeson? Mm -hmm. That we'll we'll just start. We'll have Luke Besson and his, and his team of garbage men shoot him from 87 different angles and shoot his (laughs) and cut it 15 times. Dude, they showed it. He, there was this clip when he ran down an alley and taken and he jumps over a fence and it had 87 cuts in it. It's <laughs> amazing. Oh, well, and you're, you're speaking about a thing. There's another character who does that stuff that I love and that's Charlize Theron. Oh, mm. fuck. Yes, exactly. Uh, like I that. will watch any Charlize Theron movie. I'll just do yes. it. I don't even care. I don't care if it's a on Netflix that they made for $40. I'll fucking watch it. I'll give a chance to it. See, that's interesting. I guess I'm I'm mostly on board with that, but I also think she's got enough kind of stinkers on her resume too that I'm not I mean, necessarily. She I mean, she's she's Brad Pitt. She's yeah. the one that you fucking Scarlet to me, except for that goddamn ghost in the shell, bitch. You know you done fucked up, right? Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. besides that ghost in the shell, I feel well, Keanu like Keanu even... did 47 Ronin. So I mean it's a it's a one-to-one comparison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Enough said. <laughs> oh, See, but and and this goes to the thing though, like there's always a market for types. And I'm gonna tell you right now, if I'm writing a script where I need an inscrutable, taciturn white guy in the starring role, I'm going to fucking Ryan Gosling. I am mm. not watching your fucking independent movies to see what fresh new face there is who could maybe play that type of role. Like my first call is to Ryan Gosling's agent. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I just think that that is kind of the crux of why the movie star will never quite go away because it's like certain people show up and you just know they're marketable. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like as a director, as a producer, as a writer, what the fuck ever, 
there is just a certain, well, shit, I want to see this person do the thing, you know? And as much as like that does really limit opportunities, I don't know how you get away from that. Again, though, I think the thing is, I, the movie star is not going away. We're broadening our perception of what a movie star is. Yeah. And I think the people who hate on that are obviously f- fuckheads, honestly. Like, we're, sure. we're just we're making it be that, like I said, a, a bug-eyed dude to start out as a crackhead uh, is, is, is a movie star. That wouldn't have happened in the 40s and 50s and 60s. You know, it just wouldn't, period. Like you, you had to be the Barack Obama of acting to be a fucking actor. Sidney <laughs> Portier. Sidney yes. Portier got to kiss a chick in his like 57th movie. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, no, I mean, like to, real. <laughs> to be fair, forever in Hollywood, there was enough room for one leading man black guy. And it started mm. as Sidney Portier, and then it became Denzel Washington, and then <laughs> yep. it became Will Smith. So, yep. like, we're <laughs> probably in a better era than we are for the entire rest of Hollywood. I'm thinking we – it's interesting because I, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, and I think things are getting better. I mean, I, I really do uh, as far as, like, stars go. Like, okay, y- you guys always laugh at these guys, but Jean-Claude Van Damme had a bunch of very good grossing movies. He made uh, about $500 million dollars. In, in these action flicks that he made that were made for, like, you know, $1,000 or some shit. <laughs> sure. You know, but he's made, a, like, a ton of money at the box office. I think as a kid, Jean-Claude Van Damme act- counted as a star, like oh. an actual star. And so it, Steven Seagal, not quite. He had those two, like, two movies that maybe almost, but then the rest were pretty uh, whatever. But I'm just, I'm just think it's interesting because, look, don't get me wrong. I enjoy the cheese of a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. And I love that he has the 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 lack of ego to make fun of himself a little bit now. He, I don't know if you saw the JCVD thing and the, the, mm-hmm. the how he doesn't take himself too seriously and stuff like that. And that's great. But he's not good at what he does. Sure. <laughs> and I really do think that now the quality of of stars has gone up. And I, and I think that we'll see that in the future. At least I, I feel like that might be the case. I think we're going to get a lot of quality actors now and a lot of quality stars and a more diverse version of them. Um, for instance, uh, Jonathan Majors, not only going to be playing Kang, but it, everything he's done has been like successful yeah. and amazing. So there's, a, there's an aspect to this whole conversation that we haven't really delved into yet, which is, and I think about Jean-Claude Van Damme with this, there used to be a very consolidated pipeline of exposure for actors. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like in the era of Johnny Carson, David Letterman, you literally had page six, the talk shows and your entertainment tonight type shit that your mom would watch. And like, that's how people stayed famous. And, and I still remember when I was a kid, like I think to this day, the only Jean-Claude Van Damme movie I've ever seen is Street Fighter. But I was intimately familiar with that guy because the him kicking the can off Jay Leno's head was like this legendary thing in pop culture. Right. And like that was him demonstrating how he first got hired. And there was like just this mythology around like this guy is just such a badass. He walked into an executive's office, put a can on his head and roundhouse kicked it off. And they started putting him in movies and like, that mythology carried a long way. 
And now we're living in such a decentralized media ecosystem that people have all sorts of weird different ways to become famous or stay famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so well, just real quick, I want to, I want to go down the, uh, the roads less traveled. So Jean-Claude Van Damme tries to kick the can off of Jay Leno's head. He fails impacting Jay Leno's temple, giving him brain damage. Oh. Conan O'Brien becomes the host of the to- tonight show years earlier and has more success. Never goes to TBS. How was the world different? I'm just joking, but like, <laughs> I mean, that, look, it's no question that we are in the darkest timeline. So that's a brighter timeline. But yeah, there is all these different ways to get famous, though. You're right about that. And there's all these well, ways to get famous, stay famous. Uh, T-Pain is one of the biggest Twitch streamers. Mm. That's the wow. media landscape we're talking about right now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, dude. He's his uh, supposedly it's pretty lit. He has his own intro song when he starts streaming and he does a fucking song and it's and it's actually kind of like as good as a song you'd hear on the radio, as good as a good song you'd hear on the radio and he just does that and he starts Twitch streaming. That's it wild. Is, dude, it's fucking crazy, dude. Well, you know, one that one that comes to mind for me and I I literally just earlier today watched the Saturday Night Live hosted by Kiki Palmer. And like this has been a big Kiki Palmer year, obviously because of Nope. But mm-hmm. like, I had no idea who she was. But she started doing press for Nope, and like people fucking loved her. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, who is this? Yep. And then you do the research, and it's like, well, she like had a talk show for a number of years. But like, I'm not the daytime talk show watching type. And like, she starred in. She she starred in shows that like I knew nothing about. I wasn't the audience for. So it was like, obviously, I knew Akila and the Bee, which was like her breakthrough as a child. And that was a big studio movie. I mean, it might have been an independent movie that eventually got wide distribution. But like it was a big movie. But she stayed famous in the interim by doing all this shit that like literally never came across my path. And that's just the nature of living in a non-monolithic media ecosystem. Whereas like when I was a kid, nobody could do that. Like if you were going to be famous, mm-hmm. me as a consumer of pop culture just would encounter you because yes. that's how mm-hmm. narrow the pipeline was. And see, and I think that is the part again, and I don't want to harp on this too much, but I think that is the part that certain people are like missing about the days. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking that's gone and it's not gone because everybody got woke and it's not gone because everybody's trying to tokenize and panderize or whatever kind of right-wing idiot word soup talking points you have about why you're seeing more Negroes and gays and such and such on your television. It's the fact that the media escape fucking James Charles of a canceled oh, gay Jesus. person. Uh, but James Charles got super famous from something that I would never even think existed. YouTube makeup tutorial. When would that ever come up into my fat ass uh, neck beard lexicon? When would that ever come across my thing? But to be super famous to the point where you can get canceled to the point where you can be like, have be trending on Twitter for getting canceled and something I've never seen and never would think about. That's what's scaring some of these. I'm sorry. These guys that wear the beer hats and the fucking cheese heads and shit. And some of these guys, I think some of these guys are really scared that it's not just Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks anymore. Mm. I think they're well, really freaking out. How are these I people think, famous? They're freaking out about it. It's fine to be surprised about it, but to freak out about it is pussy. No, yeah, it, your yeah. reaction says a lot, I think. Yeah. It certainly disincentivizes 
sort of the quid pro quo arrangements that the people who used to control every ladder to success could preside over. So this idea Mm. of like, look, you're not going to be famous unless we sleep together is like, it's, it becomes less and less a thing. The more and more opportunities for success exist. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And I've, I've heard people call it the, it's like, it's almost uh, somebody who remain nameless, but they said, um, I don't, I, when I put up my thing about the movie star should go the way of the dodo, uh, we should pick the person that's right for the role. And they were like, I don't really like that because that sounds like democratizing. Uh, and I'm just like, why the fuck wouldn't some art like acting be democratized, first of all? And second of all, there's a type of person who doesn't like democracy. I was going to say, yep. since when <laughs> is democratizing a system a man thing? Dude, and they brought up the example, and, and we touched on it last episode. Uh, see our Thanksgiving episode towards the end. We're talking about new media landscape. He touched, he said, um, see journalism versus blogging. And I'm just like, okay, so somebody can just lie and make up stuff on their blog and act like it's reportage. Perez Hilton did it for years. For sure. Yeah. And and that sucks. That's fine. But to say that so-called regular journalism, frankly, in the modern age, is any is is just guaranteed empirical and isn't working for the powers that be as well and isn't fucked up in some kind of way. It just it just seems stupid. You know what I mean? Like I, I, this this I, this concept that there was once an empirical tell the truth paper. And now it's either that or some garbage that never was. And you're making that up. I actually argued that there is more availability of people fighting up against the government and the powers that be than there used to be. Yeah, I think I think where that becomes messy and this is a whole tangent we can go on is where that becomes messy is that there 100 percent are. But like what percentage of those people are doing it for absolutely ludicrous reasons? No, that's a great point. If you if you're fighting against the government, you're fighting against the powers that be because you think that they're all devil worshiper baby eaters. You know, maybe that's not a great thing. Exactly. But, well, but I what mean, I will, no. <laughs> what I will say though is if you yeah, I will agree with Ed that if you ever think if you ever thought that the era when these monoliths controlled media was a good era, look no further. HBO Max just put out a documentary about the Murdoch family that goes all the way back to, fuck, I think 1912 was when Rupert Murdoch's father was uh, buying up newspapers in Australia. And like, you were only ever sold the appearance of fair and balanced. And the Mm -hmm. fact that Fox News made that their slogan was sort of the beginning of the end for that appearance. I will say this, there are institutions that have always worked well, not perfectly, but well, but they tend to be maintained by a collection of individuals who are committed to that idea. So like, yes, the New York Times being the paper of record is arguably a good thing and has been a good thing throughout the course of modern American history. But it's like, it's not because there was one person sitting at the top of the New York Times going, we are going to set the standard for journalism. It's the fact that all those on the ground reporters working for the New York Times were governed by a set of ethics that they all took seriously. Mm -hmm. So even there, you're talking about a diverse group of people who all buy into a certain ethic. And it, it, it wasn't ever the case that like trimming that pool down to somebody's idea of the elite is the way to go. 
you know what I mean? So right. Well, let's take that. Let's take that. Let's put that towards um, the acting thing as we round out here. Sure. I think that's sort of happening in acting and shit, but I I don't know if there's an erosion of the same checks and balances there always were. You still have to be hot to Allison Jones casting. If Allison yeah. Jones don't fuck with you, you're not gonna get on. Period. Well, I, and to add to that, I mean, I I was working for. Um, an indie film production company, you know, within the past five years. And it is still the case that when you find a script or a project you like, the first step in the process of getting that motherfucker made is to go up to the whiteboard and put your male lead and your female lead and create lists of actors that you could cast. Because that's how you go out and you get money. That's how you go out and you you uh, are able to hire good directors, good cinematographers, good sort of department head people is you got to prove to him this is a serious project with somebody serious attached to it. I don't know if that ever gets quote unquote fixed because at the end of the day, and look, I mean, this is more true in independent film, but this is still how it works even at the studio level. Like a film project will never really be anything more than or less than an investment. And so Anytime anybody is going to invest money to get a project made, it's because they think they're going to make more money back. Now, obviously, that goes wrong more often than it goes right. But how do you convince somebody that they're going to make more money back? I'm just telling you from hard fought experience, it's very hard to do that based on the idea of the thing. I, I don't care how literate the person you're talking to is just saying, look how great this fucking script is does not loosen up the coin purse. You got to have other assets. You know what I mean? Well, is it? Okay. So, so in this case, we, as a pop culture podcast, and as somebody who's covered all the Marvel movies ad nauseum, almost, um, is it? So it is now, it seems to be, there seems to be like two tribes that are left of the warring ways you could get movies made from, I think back in the days, brilliant concept could do it though. Like fucking Jaws. Jaws was like a brilliant concept. Like, Hey, we're going to show a shark. On screen, fucking shit up big time for the first time. I think that got people in the seats. It wasn't Roy Scheider's fucking flat nosed ass. For sure. But I think the context of that is important. Number one, it was based on a best selling book. That's true. As so many things are, right? Number two, it was a super low budget movie. Like that wasn't anybody's idea of a tent pole. You know, when they they greenlit Jaws, they were greenlighting a schlocky monster movie. Like yeah. that was the idea in the head of those studio people. Yeah, it had cost overruns that made it kind of get bigger and bigger. But like, yeah, there was a you could have shot uh, Sugarland Express and a half for the original budget of uh, of Jaws, I think. And I think that the other part of that is like a monster movie is a tried and true low budget investment in and of mm. itself. And I think that's why you end up seeing even to this day a lot of the most experimental filmmaking being made at like a studio level or even a sub studio level is often in the horror genre because that's where audiences show up to just see interesting shit. I mean, the essentially the horror genre is like the art house of the mainstream. It's mm, where you can still find audiences who are just there because they want to be challenged or what have you. Um, so Jaws, I think, broke out of its own box in a lot of ways because Spielberg turned out to be an incredibly effective inventive director And like what that movie ended up being was much better than what anybody going into it wanted it to be. 
because it's like you hire a guy who's an experienced television director to adapt a book as a low budget monster movie for summer audiences just looking to have a good time goes on to become one of the greatest movies ever made but it's like that's not how it started by any means yeah nobody starts out trying to make the greatest movie they've tried to make a profitable movie for that quarter to keep the investors happy that's the, From goal. the amount of money they're given yeah and the, the way they determine that amount of money has to do with all those factors i just mentioned and to a certain extent i think that still happens i mean i think you still see mini studios production companies totally independent productions taken swings on things like horror movies that end up breaking great new talent. You know, I, Florence Pugh came out of horror movies and mm-hmm. now she's one of the, now she's a bona fide movie star that people are seeking out to make their big budget movies. But it's like going all the way back to, she did a movie called Malevolent that I think is streaming somewhere, but that was in like 2016, maybe even 2015. And it's like, that was just a low budget haunted house horror movie with an interesting twist to it. And then, she, you know, her breakout then was Midsommar, which comes from mm-hmm. A24, which is kind of the, the poster child of like just interesting experimental low budget horror movies. Um, so it's like that stuff still happens. I, I think what we're, what we all would like to see, right. Is something more on the level of like, how do you make, how do you make just a big studio action movie without just giving the lead role to Chris Pratt or, you know, Chris Michael Evans B. Jordan or, or Chris yeah. Evans? Yeah. Yeah. Because hmm. I got to be honest with you. I think, I think if it's not genre, so we're, so the point of this discussion is the biggest box office draw. And we can, I think right now we know a genre, like, Period. It's a franchise and a genre. So that's that's the biggest box office draw right now. Marvel's been and comic book movies in general have been making a shitload of money for a while. That's probably what it is. But I think if the other argument is 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 act can an actor still be a box box office draw? I think it. I think they can, um, but that maybe they ha- it has to be out of a genre for it to be a, a specific draw. One thing I want to point out, though, Ron, is like Daniel Craig, I think, is a good example. So there's a guy who, you know, was almost universally beloved as James Bond, even if, you know, those movies weren't universally beloved, who's a very accomplished actor with a career going back decades and a lot of big movies under his belt, even outside of the franchises. But so then look at Knives Out. Knives Out, great little movie, did some really interesting stuff. But again, that's a movie that gets sold on the strength of its ensemble. You know, yep. none of the You're right. none of those commercials or trailers are trying to sell you, hey, come see this new Daniel Craig movie. They're mm. trying, you know, that's those are one of those trailers that are just boom, Daniel Craig, boom, Tony Collette, boom, Michael Shannon, boom, Chris Evans, boom, Ana Diarmas. You know, it's like they're just trying to overwhelm you now. I don't know if any of these people are the star you want to see, but I'm gonna give you somebody for every <laughs> fucking quadrant, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting you say that because as we've been talking. I've been trying to think of like maybe a game for us to play as we as we round out about like would certain movies work without stars, and mm-hmm. I think without a so called star like maybe I'll mm-hmm. start Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. If a Quiet Place is made exactly as well as it's made, but it doesn't have Jim from The Office, and it and Emily Blunt, I'll let you have Emily Blunt. It has Emily Blunt, but it doesn't have Jim from The Office. 
I think it goes because she's big, especially after a certain shit. But I don't. But if you if she isn't if it doesn't have Emily Blunt or the guy from The Office, but it's just as well made, does it go? Does it blow up as big as it is right now? Here's an and obviously Krasinski had a big deal in making it that good. So somebody else just as good as Krasinski was in it, and it wasn't him. But here's what's interesting. Okay, a quiet place. You're not selling it on John Krasinski at all. It's just a cool looking horror movie you know, with interesting trailers with Emily Blunt and her husband played by some dude you've never seen before in your life. Mm -hmm. I don't think that movie makes as much money by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Hmm. And I think I I would go so far as to say the reverse is true too. Even if it's a movie made by John Krasinski starring John Krasinski looks the exact same as it does blah, blah, blah. But his wife is played by some woman you've never heard of. And here's where the innate sexism of Hollywood comes in. I would probably argue if that woman is hot enough, maybe it does do as well as it did. Hmm. Mm. That, 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 that's a, I think you're probably right. It's pretty fucking Imogene Poots is in there as his fucking child bride. (laughs) I mean, again, it could be a complete unknown. I mean, now we're going to like Rosie Huntington Whiteley in the Transformers movie, right? So Megan Fox is a known quantity. She's super hot. People love her in those first few movies. She has a she has a falling out with Michael Bay. So they literally take a Victoria's Secret model with no a- acting experience and no name recognition. They shove her in that movie and it doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they didn't miss Megan's beautiful thumbs. Sons of bitches. I don't know, I, man. I but again, like that's not necessarily what we're talking about, but it's an aspect of what we're talking about. Well, it's and a fran- it's a franchise, like, but I think that's different because it's in the middle of a franchise. But like, okay, let's think of some other ones. Like, because like I try to think of things that broke out. They're small and they break out. Like, obviously, like, okay, fucking um, I don't think something like uh Six Sense, right? It mm. doesn't have Bruce Willis in it. Mm-hmm. It has some great it has fucking I don't know. Uh, it, it has maybe. Um, I was gonna say it has Michael Stuhlbarg in it. Mm, who are you gonna but say, my- Ron? Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> it's a method actor. He'd have to kill himself so he could play the role correctly. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little bit of an unfair because, like, I would argue that by 1995 or whenever the fuck Six Six Sense came out, Daniel Day Lewis was also a bona fide movie star. Mm. Yes. Okay. Was. Okay. Put that era's Mark Ruffalo in it. Does it go? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I don't know if it gets made, and even if it gets made, I don't think as many people pay attention to it, for sure. Hmm. Just Haley Joe Osman just giving his all, and just some John Claude Van Damme ass actor being like, "I don't, I am trying to counsel you, child." <laughs> you know? like, just, but here's, and at so the we, same time, check this out: yeah. um, somebody else besides Tobey Maguire plays Spider Man. Doesn't even matter who. But that's an interesting comparison because people are constantly asking for Superman movies starring nobody. Starring a nobody, yeah, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. I yeah. think I think Spider Man without Tobey Maguire probably does fine. Yep, unless he's just a shitty actor. Yeah, I think it yeah. probably does totally super fine. terrible. But somebody who just is fine. Here's an interesting one: Everything, Everywhere, All the Time. Ooh, that movie that just came out that by all by all definitions is essentially a miracle indie, right? Like that just has an unbelievably mind-blowing script and concept that's just executed to perfection. Michelle Yeoh is not necessarily your traditional Mm -hmm. definition of a movie star, but they make that movie with 
a 60-year-old female lead that nobody's ever heard of before? Does it yeah. go? I, does it become go. famous? I don't think it goes. No. I don't yeah. think it goes, it goes either. I don't think so either. Holy shit, that's interesting. And but see, I think that that's that's kind of what I was getting at earlier in that I am not advocating that we throw all the Tom Cruises, Brad Pitts, and my beautiful baby Scarlett Johansson's in a fucking wood chipper and just install a fucking kente cloth instead. That's not that's not what oh. I am prescribing. I am just saying that look at what we just said. And certain certain franchises need this sort of star. Certain things need this. Like you can now pick from all these different types of people and plug and play. Like how how much star do you need for this? How, is this person a star in this genre that gets across from our when we market this movie with this person's face on the poster there's a confidence in the martial arts action that's going to be in here mm. and there's just enough name recognition from all that for you to want to see her really act and kick some ass and then you get uh john kikwan in there when you're just like oh no you get a nostalgia kick off of that and it becomes this perfect storm to make that movie work right. and that's different than just tom hanks meryl streep Everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. Okay. Like, you, yeah, you don't. Very important question, though. Scarlett Johansson plays Michelle Yeoh. And the rest of the cast the, stays the I same. She, I think she learned her lesson. <laughs> I think she learned her lesson doing that shit. Amazing. I also, though, I, I do think bringing up Meryl Streep is a great counterpoint, though, because if it was 25 years ago, like yeah. you literally couldn't make that movie unless you had Meryl Streep or whatever that era's version of Meryl Streep was because there was only room for one woman around the age of 60 who was a movie star. You know yeah. what I mean? Like in a previous time, Meryl Streep would be the only woman over 60 that anybody would want to cast in any movie that calls for a woman over 60. And it's good mm -hmm. that that's no longer the case. Yep. Yeah, and that's all that's all I've ever really argued for in regards to this like cuz I I understand the stars never going to die. I just want more people to be considered stars. And no, I don't need the third lead in Transformers, the guy who sits at the computer and goes, "Oh shit, they're coming now." I don't need that guy to be a superstar. I don't need that. I don't know why anybody yeah. needs that. I would love for that guy to to put a fucking, you know, a new addition to his home because he sat there as the guy in the chair. I'd love that more than right. that guy having to be fucking Paul Giamatti. You know what I'm saying? That's that's all I'm saying. And I, I love that there's and I love ensembles, too. That was beautiful what you said earlier about Knives Out being it's uh, I think there are people who are Ryan Johnson fans and fans of Ryan Johnson's writing in particular, mm -hmm. I got to say. And I think if you love Ryan Johnson's writing and you love that ensemble cast, Knives Out was just for you. Same thing is true of Tarantino, though. You know, mm -hmm. Tarantino, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is arguable because it's sort of, it's self-conscious about the tropes of fame and stardom. But like, if Tarantino was going to make Hateful Eight with a bunch of TV actors or people that like you've never heard of before, I don't think that movie goes. And I don't even think yeah. that movie's as good. You know, right. I, I think there's just, there's a genre of movie that's just a movie star movie. Um, and whether you're yeah. self-consciously making it or not, you know, and again, it's not like Samuel Jackson and Kurt Russell are like the be all end all of movie stars, but that movie's getting made at a time when both of those guys are really hot in roles that are written specifically for them or for their type. 
And that but works. also, there's something about baggage, though. I'm sorry, but this is I, I, every every episode. I have one part where I actually say something smart, and here it goes. It's the baggage. Quentin Tarantino loves the baggage. Yeah. He loves the baggage of bringing fucking Pam Greer into uh, Jackie Brown. He and and casting Robert Forster from Alligator and shit as a this good guy, you know. But he likes the fact that. People have seen these actors in movies, made an association with them, have all these endorphins firing when they see these people, and then to take those people and genre bend them, or take those people like people love um, to listen to um, Robert De Niro talk. So what did Tarantino do? Gave him one of the most silent roles ever, and he acted his ass off in that role. And I know De Niro was just every day just synapses firing. With, How can I behave in this scene rather than having all these lines? And that's another thing Quentin Tarantino does as far as when he gets actors. He gives them something to do they may have never done before. He gives them something to do that they can do that maybe he sees in them. And last things last, he, he casts these things so that even when you see the poster, you get this feeling that's, that's made of other movies, much like his, his movies are made of other movies. Mm-hmm. That's why he's lamenting the death of the movie star, because one of his main tricks is going to be taken away if we take the movie star away. Well, he's only making one more movie anyway, so what the fuck does he care? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, I think there is an argument to be made that, like, from that perspective, makes sense. I just think that, I mean, shit, maybe in his mind, he is connecting the death of the movie star with the death of the auteur director. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, he might not be wrong about that, because, like, the ability to both get a movie made based on the cleverness of your inverting of tropes and expectations. And then also having just like the creative fortitude to look at actors and their baggage and how to invert that and play with that is sort of a rare skill. And so between losing more opportunities to do it and not being able to find the people who have that sort of singular generational skill set, and the rise of franchise filmmaking and sort of directors for hire in service to these bigger ideas, I think the type of filmmaking that Tarantino does is probably a fairly endangered species. White rhino. (laughs) Or the black rhino. Whichever one is the most (laughs) uh, fucking, uh, as we wrap up here, what do you think it's going to be like in the future? Like, Ron, a movie that's in 2042. What does a movie even look like in 2042? Given how we're going, 2022. Well, first off, no one's going to want to hear this, but it's just beamed directly into your fucking uh, head with with a, <laughs> with a fucking chip. And the actor is anybody you want it to be. It literally will look like anything that matches whatever you think is hot, whatever you think is talented. That's just going to be on your fucking face. If you're talking 2042 and we're past AI the singular journey. I mean, fuck. Yeah. Uh, that's probably actors. You're, we're not going to need actors where we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! That is the, that is the modern day Doc Brown. There though, actors we don't need actors. That's yeah, fucking hilarious. But uh, I mean, look, I think I think at some point, I think at some point, what we're going to get to see is is what fits the role. Just like you said, Ed. I think at some point that is what's going to happen. There'll be people who are you're going to want to watch still. Because there's gonna be, there's always gonna be someone who's so talented, so charismatic, that you can't hide how amazing they are on screen, and you'll want to watch those people over and over again. But I don't think it'll be about the same thing. I don't, I don't think it'll be who the hottest person is. I don't think it'll be who has the most abs or or, or whatever. 
Like I don't, I don't think that's going to be a, a play a part anymore beyond people just fitting roles that they need to fit. I think we're going to see the only stars we see are people who are so talented. They can't help but be stars. Hmm. Yeah. I think um, Idris Elba is going to the, the Idris Elba skin is going to be very popular. They're just going to put the Idris Elba on their VR glasses and just Sounds fuck good. them and then go Look. see a movie with him in it while they're sitting next to him in the v- VR world. But honestly, like while you're bullshitting, I don't know how long it's going to take to get to the point where we're essentially using like deep fake AIs to just, mm-hmm. yeah, create the movie you want to see. But like in the interim, I do see the movie experience becoming more and more gamified. And I don't necessarily mean that as like a choose your own adventure thing, but I think we've gone through the era where the movie star was the draw. We've gone through yeah. the era now where the franchise is the draw. And I think that people have kind of uniformly come to recognize that like outside of the essentially Disney machine, it's very hard to even make that go. Mm-hmm. I think the next thing is going to be sort of like experiment. Maybe it's not the gamification. Maybe it's the techification, um, like Silicon Valleyification of movies. And so it's going to be, all right, we're going to make a movie that you watch on 360 degree LED screens in a spherical volume, or we're going to start making movies for the fucking metaverse as much as I hate those words. Maybe not even for the metaverse, but like we're going to start making the VR movies. We're going to make a movie that starts as a video game, turns into an internet scavenger hunt, and then the story ends with, you know, a a movie at the, at the movie theater that you go to see plus a follow-up TV show. And I, you know, this movie was shot completely with 360 degree cameras. And so you can either watch it in the theater or if you have a VR headset, you could watch it that way. Like, I just think that is going to be the next attempt anyway at sort of revitalizing or redefining what the movie industry is. And I think you're going to start to see stars, whatever. And, and I think stars nowadays are more just people that like your audience likes. So you're mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds, you're Dwayne Johnson, you're Chris Hemsworth. You know, yeah. Chris Hemsworth maybe can't carry a movie, but you fucking put him on a surfboard in a not in an unscripted show and you could fucking make a National Geographic series as they mm-hmm. just did. So it's like I think those types of guys are going to end up partnering with and becoming like the brand face in the same way they're now the brand face for their fucking vanity liquor labels. They're going to become the brand face for 360 film and like that might not last more longer than one movie but that's going to be the next evolution of the star yeah this next product from hemsworth films uh you can dive into a glacial crevasse and you just like there's (laughs) like stark white well i i saw like literally somebody there was a they were they're walking on a glacier and they saw like this puddle and they put a gopro into the puddle and the puddle went down thousands of feet Sure. thousands Whoa. of feet into the global garage and it was so dark and ominous down there i was looking at my phone on twitter i threw my phone it was so creepy and scary to see that just but just like imagine you put on a 360 set you could actually dive down there and like they pump the ac in the theater or wherever you're at you know put some cold packs on your ass at home or you know something to immerse you in that that you are diving down into a crevasse and a glacier and there could be anything down there and then with special effects like a fucking monster comes up and you have to like fight it or something, you know, I, well, I as far I mean, as 2042, I was thinking more like 2032 really. Cause I'm just thinking, well, okay. A movie, not a goddamn 
VR but ride, but what a movie, what, what would they even be? But this, this is what I'm saying. I, I see a future where you open up your fucking TikTok feed and there's Dwayne Johnson's fucking big face. And he's, <laughs> and this is what he says. Hey guys, I'm so excited to be partnering with Tencent or Alibaba out of China or whatever, wherever the fuck he's getting a billion dollars from. And it's mm -hmm. like, Hey guys, I just want to tell you, I'm so excited to be partnering with Tencent on ER. It's not VR. It's not AR. It's experience reality. We're building theme parks outside of 20 movie theaters in the United States where you can come and experience the prequel to my next movie for yourself. It's going to be awesome. And I will see you there. And it's like, that's the type of shit. Wow. Yeah, I'm fucking, I'm fucking sorry. Uh, you're hired. Shit. You're hired. Dude, no, I'm, I'm I just definitely... hired you, Bill. I want to watch that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm definitely sold on that. I was just thinking like, uh, and last things last, the thing about a movie experience, I don't think they're going to give it up. I don't think they're going to go kind go uh, into that good night. You know, uh, I think we're going to get more cocaine bears to wrap it back up to that, to go all the way back to the beginning, because yeah. it seems like Universal is going. I think Universal, especially I think Universal did, if I'm not mistaken, um, Violent Night, which we just saw. And we're going to have yeah. the screenwriters on for an episode in the future. Um, but Violent Night, great movie. Go see it. Um, it is it is better than you could think of. It's more it's than its concept. Wonderful. It's hyper violent and also heartwarming. You never see no shit like it. And but like Universal did that. Universal did cocaine. But Universal's like, I think in the period before we get to VR, rock face, weird shit. In the period where we're actually still going to movies for whatever that's worth, or however the, that market shrinks or expands or whatever, that next period, I think it's going to be, hey, when our Disney has characters, when they pull their pants off, they don't have genitalia because that's not germane to the story. Uh -huh. There's no, there's no, like I said last time, there's never going to be Karen Page gets AIDS in the Daredevil stories that the Disney <laughs> no. tells. It's never going to happen. All I'm saying is like Universal and other studios it just seems like what they need to do is do everything Disney can't do. And that's going to be how they make their money. Disney's never going to do cocaine bear unless he sings songs and stuff, you know, my only counterpoint to that would be, does, you know, does universal as a business stick around long enough that that becomes their strategy? Because here's, mm. here's the other reality that we've only kind of glanced on in this conversation is there have been rumors that, you know, Disney Fox, which is now a single studio, is looking at buying out Paramount. Um, Whoa. By all accounts, you know, well, especially if, if look, if there's a Republican administration in Congress, nobody's going to stop that for antitrust reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but the other part of that is like in a world where a non Disney studio just can no longer count on mega hits are those businesses willing to scale themselves back enough that like universal can subsist on, look, we're going to make 25, 10 to $30 million, like essentially elevated grindhouse pictures a year. Mm -hmm. And that'll be enough for us. And like, I mean, I, I, don't I think, I don't know if anybody's really tried it. Like I think I think I think uh, the closest we ever got really was Miramax, and then by the time they they got bought by Disney, and they were just sort of, you know what I mean? So like you know, so it's just like fuck. That, I guess that's the answer. Uh huh. <laughs> Anybody who doesn't, fucking Disney goes, hey, come into this room with all this uh, cellophane on the floor, and they shoot you in the back of the head. 
look, there, there's also rumors that like Warner Brothers, which just fucking merged with Discovery a year ago, is looking at can they sell? And I don't know who they would sell to, but like I would imagine that there's all kinds of shit involved in that. Like, can they sell to Amazon? Can they sell to Tencent in China? Can they merge with NBC Universal and they all become owned by Comcast? Like we're in this era where entertainment studios on their own can no longer post the kind of reliable profits that like Wall Street likes. And so it's just getting to the point where like the only way to be sustainable as a multinational corporation is to become the biggest one imaginable, right? Like mm. we, we kind of grew up in this weird era where there was so much new money out there between cable TV, between the rise of blockbuster filmmaking, between special effects sort of opening up all these new opportunities for interesting films that people are going to rush out to see. There was all this money on the table. And so in a lot of ways, Hollywood was the most competitive it's ever been circa the mid nineties. And ever since then, all that shit has sort of become systematized and, and become institutionalized in such a way that it's like, well, shit, if we can't deliver exactly what somebody wants to see based on shit that they knew in their childhood, starring people that they love in the comfort of their own home, do we even have a viable product? And by the way, if we're giving them that product, are we even making enough money back from it to justify the cost of it? And so it's like, we're oh, just in this yeah. place where I don't know if you can really guess what the strategy for a movie studio is going to be in 10 years, because I don't think they can. You <laughs> know what I mean? <laughs> I think that's a, a good a note to end on as any man, because you're right. No amount of us trying to pretend like we know. Although I do, I do love, um, I do love the the future that you and Ron created where I have to get on a I have to lose about another hundred pounds so I can get on some VR slingshot outside <laughs> of a fucking mall and yes. get slung around so I can understand the fucking story for Black Adam eight. Uh -huh. That's that's gonna be that's gonna be great on my old bones. That sounds fun. <laughs> um look, I just can't wait to watch the Disney Paramount Hulu ESPN plus Warner Brothers DC <laughs> CW Hallmark uh, Channel Hallmark Channel um, what else? Netflix streaming app. <laughs> like, I just can't wait to watch Disney own fucking everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, um, you know, Corp. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, speaking of which, you know what we own? The hearts and minds of our listeners. We got yeah. another review. Woo! Love that. We are well Dude. on our way to competing with Disney. Yeah. Dude, we're, yeah. we're going to become yeah. a multinational yeah. corporation in a minute. Uh, and please, Disney buy us because none of us wants to work forever <laughs> on our own thing. We're, we're, what's that thing? And Popstar and Popstar, uh, fucking Andy Samberg's character says, man, nobody even cares about selling out anymore. Matter of fact, if you don't sell out, people think nobody asked you. <laughs> oh so, shit so yeah that's about the size of it so we have another review it is from mcsnicked and uh it says uh, the header is fantastic podcast especially if you like comic book based media and it says uh i started listening to ed ron and bill back during their nerd goat podcast days and while i enjoyed nerd goat this new podcast format really allows the fellas to shine they've totally hit their stride for any fan of comic books and comic book-based movies, I strongly recommend the five-part greatest comic book movies by decade series. 
Also, if you've seen Wakanda Forever, listening to their podcast on the film increased my appreciation and enjoyment of it. Keep it up, guys. Baller. Thanks, man. That's that's how, that makes me feel nice. Thank you, McSnick. That was really fucking cool. And I I honestly, for my own pleasure, I was walking. I kind of walk about six miles a day now. I listened to the Black Panther episode the other day. And I got to say, for somebody who was kind of who watched it and appreciated it, but maybe didn't have some of the talking points, I guess, since we're all debating each other all over the place now, may not have been able to articulate why like Riri and, and, and Bilbo and Contessa were important to the story. They could say something I said. If they had a quibble with something, they could say something Bill said. If they had an enthusiasm about something, they could say something Ron said. So on and so forth all around the, all around the horn. I think that's what we're here for. To, to like we're your buddies consuming this stuff with you and decompressing with you. So I'm glad that people come to us for that. It's a, a I'm glad we could be that boon to people. I also like that he said that the new format is uh, something that gives us the chance to shine and that he seems to be enjoying because I know that, you know, we discussed a lot between us. Is it the same show? Is it as good of a value? You know, do we want to go with the show that isn't bringing on guests all the time and trying to find new people or new fandoms that way? And eventually we just said, fuck it, let's try and make it our show. And so it's it's always nice to hear that that's resonating with people. And that's why I'm saying uh, leave us more reviews. It really helps us share with your friends. Tell tell your friends about us. Like if you if you sit with your friends and talk about nerd stuff and film and comic books, recommend our pod. Help us out. It'll be great. Um, if you want to help us out monetarily, we won't turn it down. You can get our patreon.com slash the greatest pod. You get extra pods. You get art. You get cool stuff. So join that as well. And, and I just want to say as we're nearing uh, – Christmas and just being past Thanksgiving, how thankful I am to be doing this awesome podcast and and really and really having like great friends and a great listenership who likes the stuff we do. Well, Ron, I think we can all agree that we all feel very blessed to be a part of the greatest podcast.